Welcome to the Contracting Officer Podcast. It's not just for contracting officers. If you work anywhere in the government acquisition world, this podcast is for you. The topic today is an important distinction in the world of services contracts. What is a personal services contract? This episode is brought to you by the team of former contracting officers at Skyway Acquisition. Learn how to get a personal license to the Skyway community at skywaymember.com. Okay, let's get started with personal services contracts. The government actually spends more on services than they do on products now. And one of the things that makes that interesting is it used to be the opposite. There used to be more government employees doing things that are now done by contractors. The net result is there are more dollars spent on service contracts than on products. Yeah, I don't I don't know whether there were more government employees overall or whether there's just a lot more stuff to do now because of all the regulations and approximately the same number of government employees. But regardless, there are a lot more service contracts out there. The contractor supports the government under these service contracts, and that concept of support should be clear. But sometimes it's not clear. Sometimes the line gets kind of blurry, and that's what we're going to talk about today, the difference between what most contracts are, non-personal services versus personal services contracts. Before we get into that, let's stop and say thanks. I say thanks today to Valerie Hamby for posting on LinkedIn. I'm just going to read her post because it's, it's just that good. The CO podcast is a great service offering much needed insight and information. I love it. So when you post things like that, <laughs> listen to the podcast. So you know, it's a great endorsement. I really appreciate that. Plus, it makes us feel really warm and fuzzy inside. <laughs> well, more Thanks, important, Valerie. <laughs> it makes people try listening to a podcast they think might suck. <laughs> and now they listen to it. All right, back to personal versus non-personal services. Personal services is defined in FAR Part 2. That's where the definitions are. That's a riveting part of the FAR, by the way. <laughs> definitions, yeah. Get you started right, right in Part 2. Personal services contract, according to FAR Part 2, means a contract that by its expressed terms or as administered, and that's important, makes the contractor personnel appear to be, in effect, government employees. FAR Part 37 talks specifically about personal services contracts. 37104A says a personal services contract is characterized by the employer-employee relationship it creates between the government and the contractor's personnel. So what this means is that that contractor-employee appears to be a government employee. There, it's, a, it's a personal relationship. It's how you would direct and oversee and manage somebody who worked directly for you. That is a very different feel than non-personal. So let's just put that out there. The government is normally required to hire people directly under a competitive appointment or civil service procedures. Obtaining personal services, actual personal services by contract rather than hiring them as civil servants circumvents all the laws that Congress has put in place. So in order to issue a personal services contract, it has to be specifically authorized by Congress. And that's 37104B. Agencies shall not award personal services contracts unless specifically authorized by statute to do so. And how often does that happen, Kevin? (laughs) Yeah, not very often. I can tell you were reading the FAR because you used the word circumvent. That's not a a word. I use that word every day. How do you know? (laughs) How do you know I don't? And just for that, I'm going to read some more from the FAR. (laughs) More from 37104. An employer-employee relationship under a service occurs when 
It's a result of either the contract's terms. So the contract actually says, this is a personal services contract. You are under direct supervision of a government employee. Or the contract doesn't specifically say this is a personal services contract, but the way that you're administering it during performance causes contractor personnel to be subject to the relatively continuous supervision and control of a government officer or employee. So if a government person says, hey, contractor, I need that report by Friday, that's not personal services. That's, that's direction, not continuous supervision. Yeah, having somebody submit a report, that's not going to be direct supervision. This isn't legal counsel, but the one that comes to my mind is a like, doctor-nurse relationship. In some military contracts that are for personal services, you have the doctor as an active duty, usually active duty military, and the nurse is a contractor. So think about their scenario. They're in an ER. They might be in surgery. There is no blurriness whatsoever when the doctor says, I need you to do it this way. I need you to hand me that tool in this way. I need you to learn how to do this. That is a personal relationship, particularly, like I said, during an ER high-stress environment. Now, granted, it's... I'm using this as an example. Don't think that's the official standard. I don't know exactly what happens in the operating room, but I can understand how nurses would be under continuous supervision and control of a government doctor in that case. So last thing from the FAR, and this this illustrates the point. 37104, each contract arrangement must be judged in light of its own facts and circumstances. The key question always being, Will the government exercise relatively continuous supervision and control over contractor personnel performing the contract? Are you going to say it? <laughs> and, and, I'm not even and that's the thinking part of the job. That's where it's a judgment call of is this relative continuous supervision? And in the case of the doctor nurse, yeah, you can see it. In the case of, hey, can you go get this report once a month for me? Not so much. Let's link this to the time zones. This happens during the acquisition time zones when you're doing a personal services contract on purpose. So during the market research zone, the RP zone, you're making the decision whether or not a personal services contract has been specifically authorized and how you're going to issue the the RFP for that. But it also might happen accidentally (laughs) if you're (laughs) managing it like it's personal services after award. So if the contract says non-personal services... That means you're not actually directing these people, but sometimes it's going to feel like that. So when you say after contract award, you mean execution time zones. It could occur anywhere during the execution time zones. Yeah, and if you're not familiar with the acquisition and execution time zones, we have separate podcasts for each one of those to explain them in more detail. Let's talk about why understanding the difference between personal services and non-personal services is important. Most services are non-personal. And that's why a lot of times on in Section B in the CLIN, it says non-personal services for whatever. And a lot of people read over that. Just straight out. Yeah. We're telling you this is not personal services because that's not allowed. A lot of people will read over that and not realize that that's them calling out the fact that it's not a personal services contract. For non-personal services contracts, the government is buying a function. It's buying a skill set, but not a specific person with that skill set. And that's because the company, company, not the person, the company, the contractor has the contract, not the person that's sitting in front of you. Just like on the government side, the government owns the contract. The contracting officer manages the contract and the, and the program managers and customers benefit from the contract, but the government owns it, right? So the contract is between the U.S. government and the company. 
And that makes it really easy to understand. And this is the reason why service contract, they can be blurry because it's a non-personal services contract, but it's services. You're, you're talking to people. You're right in front of them, right? And what if it's an admin function? It's a function that can be expressly personal. Like let's say we have a GS-15. She's the, the leader of some organization and she has an executive assistant who's a contractor. That's a personal relationship. They're going to spend six hours a day together. But only six? What kind of government office is that? <laughs> okay, fair enough. Well, she gets to go to lunch. No, okay. 12 hours a day. A minimum of eight. Yeah, okay, fair enough. I was just thinking through how they're not always in the office because people call me out on this stuff. So let's assume that her job is to, okay, <laughs> she's an executive assistant. And you're laughing at me. She's an executive assistant who spends her whole entire job is supporting this GS-15. And so the GS-15, she has this personal relationship with her executive assistant. That feels like a personal services contract, but it's not because if the contractor said, hey, we're going to promote this person. She's now going to be the lead for, for some other part of our company, and they swap them out. And that GS-15 is going to be thinking, wow, this sucks for me because <laughs> she's gotten used right. to having her assistant. So see how – A specific person. Right. But all that's required by the contract is a person with a sp specific skill set. If it becomes about that specific person, that's where that line gets blurry, right? That's where it becomes, wait, is this personal? Are, are we supposed to supply this specific person? Are we supposed to supply someone that meets the general qualifications of that position? Yeah, and, and this can be easy to mess up. So let's take the FAR part and then apply an example to it to show you what we mean. All right, back to the FAR again. Here we go. <laughs> 37104D. And this, this really, this is the part that tells you how to tell if you actually have a personal services contract or how to tell if your non-personal services contract is crossing the line and morphing into personal services, which is bad. Yeah. So 37104D lists the elements that should be used as a guide in assessing whether or not a contract is personal in nature. Let me walk through each one of these under the context of I have a contract specialist who's supporting me. That contract specialist is a contractor. So I'm a contracting officer. I'm a government employee. I have a contract specialist who's supporting me, but she's a contractor. And this is pretty common nowadays. Yeah, I, I had three at one time, right? So here's yeah, the Can I say nowadays? Is that a thing? It's a thing. Here, so here are the conditions. Number one, the work has to, be, has to be performed on site. Well, yeah, I'm in the office. They're in the office. Okay. Number two, principal tools and equipment furnished by the government. She's working on a government computer. She's using government software. Yes, she was actually a – that number two applies. Number three, services are applied directly to the integral effort of agencies or an organizational subpart of to, to actually man, manage their mission. In other words, you're doing something that's in, integral to the overall mission. Yeah, this was – Like contracting, like, yeah. Like making sure that body armor shows up for Special Operations Command. <laughs> that's pretty integral. Okay? Yeah. So number three is met. Number four, comparable services meeting comparable needs are performed in the same or similar agencies using civil service personnel, which is to your point. Contract specialists usually are government employees because they're moving through that right. role to become a CO. So that's four. Four out of six. We've already said, yeah, this sounds like a personal services contract. Number five, the need for the type of service provided can reasonably be expected to last beyond a year. Well, yeah, because these contracts are going to last longer than <laughs> it's a. Yeah, it's probably a five-year contract, right? Go. So five out of six. Oh, boy, this is smelling like service, uh, personal services contract. Here's where it gets squirrely. Number six, and this is the judgment call. The inherent nature of the service, it smells fuzzy already, or the manner in which it's provided, again, sounds fuzzy, reasonably require direct or indirectly the government direction or supervision of contractor employees in order to 
adequately do the work, retain control of the function, and retain full personnel responsibility for the function. Well, now it's Judgment City, and that's where it gets squirrely because technically they are contractors. Yep. They all could – they could a couple of them, they got promoted because they were good at what they did. And I'm as the contracting officer who needs these people to support me going, well, yay for them. That sucks for me. But that's that's the – if you don't know that going in, it's a train wreck because you're like, what do you mean you can take these people? They're contractors. It's a non-personal service. Right. So if I walk into your contracting shop and you're the contracting officer and there's six contract specialists there, three of them are government employees, three of them are contractor employees, they're all doing relatively the same thing. Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah, been there. <laughs> oh, boy. So, so it's all how it how it's managed. You're, you have direct supervisory authority possibly over the government folks. You do not have direct supervisory authority over the contractor folks. But on a daily basis – you treat them pretty much all the same, right? Yeah, and and they're all just as committed to the mission. They're all just as committed to yeah. getting work done, and they probably gel and work together well. That's that's what makes it really awkward. <laughs> Is that it awkward yeah. for me as the as trying to lead this hybrid organization? <laughs> Is that how it sounds? Yeah. So you just ran through six points in in the far to say you might have a personal services contract if the easiest way to sum it up is. If the government employee does the same job somewhere that the contractor employee is doing in this case, it may look like a personal services contract. It's all how you handle it. Let's talk specifically about why this matters to the government, why the government cares. The line of authority, just like I talked about, can be really confusing because in that scenario, the government employees who are contract specialists can actually make within the limit of legal limits of their authority as contract specialists, they can actually make direction to contractors. Like they may say, hey, can you send me a modification, a proposal for a modification under my direction? Because they're acting on behalf of the government. Because they're actually effectively, if you extend it out, they're expending our tax dollars, right? On, on behalf of me. Contractors can't do that because th the line of authority stops. And I learned this by doing it wrong. Because <laughs> I had <laughs> a contract specialist who was a contractor send a letter asking a contractor to send us a proposal for a mod. And the lawyer said, dude, you can't do that. And I'm like, why not? Because she's a contractor. Oh, <laughs> and then it all kind of floods into my head. So this happened when you're running at the speed of, of contracts. Sometimes this happens. That's how those lines of authority can be really confusing. We're talking a lot about support contracts for government offices. Sometimes in our world, it's called CEDAS. Systems Engineering Technical Assistant. These are folks that support acquisition offices in a lot of cases. Right. And this is because of my background where I've, I've witnessed this the most, where I've seen the most instances of that blurry line between personal services and non-personal services. But the government can get itself in trouble if the contractor support personnel go a little too far and the, the developing contractor, you know, on the other side of the fence, not in the acquisition office, but the other contractors take direction from the CEDAs. Wow. If it's not authorized properly, if it's not within the program manager or COTAR's authority, or the contracting officer hasn't issued an explicit direction, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble. And again, if you're that contracting officer and half of your specialists are govies and half are contractors, you can see how it'd be very confusing for contractors that deal with your office to understand who has the authority and who doesn't have the authority to give me direction. Which is kind of why industry cares. 
Right. Flipping to the industry side. It can be really expensive if those communications are all messed up. If you take direction from someone that doesn't actually have the authority to give you that direction, but has the apparent authority, uh, the apparent authority, I don't even want to get. It's a whole other rabbit hole. Don't go down that road. Right. Right. Stay away from apparent authority. You should know who has authority and who doesn't. And if you take direction from someone who doesn't have authority, it can be a real problem. It, it leads to a mess. It's very important that industry understand. And like I was talking about, this happens a lot in acquisition program offices. In many organizations, the CETA folks are doing the, the real heavy lifting of the office because of a lack of, of experienced government personnel. So it's very easy for those experienced contractor employees to overstep their authority and create the appearance of personal services like they're really running things or or they are supervised by whoever is leading that government office. The whole concept of how best to manage this relationship is a topic for another podcast someday. It sure is. Let's wrap this up before we get into all those other topics. Know the difference between personal and non-personal services so that you avoid a lot of this communication. The concept of authority or parent authority, <laughs> it can be blurry because of if you don't know who the contractors are, all of a sudden you think, oh, this is personal services, it's not personal services, or the government employees, it's, it's, it's easy to mess it up. And that's why these require statutory authority, and they're rare. Yeah, official personal services contracts are indeed rare. But in practice, many of the services support contracts, the CETA kind of contracts that we've been talking a lot about here, feel perilously close to personal services. Hopefully we've explained the difference here. It's that direct line of authority, direct supervision, makes it personal services. If the government is contracting for a function, a description, a skill set, that's why you see resumes involved in so many of these kind of contracts. Resumes, does this person meet the, the labor category requirements? If you hear those kind of terms, that's very non-personal services. If it's a name, if it says you must hire Joe, it sounds like personal services to me. What just popped in my head to hear people say arm's length transaction it needs to be an arm's length relationship. Well, a non-personal is arm's length. It's company to organization, whereas personal services is not arm's length. <laughs> it's actual relationship that's led by the direct supervision, et cetera, you just talked about. But again, that definition of arm's length and how to apply it, another podcast, we'll cover that. I think that's a great way to sum it up. Talk to you later, Kevin. See you, Paul. Okay, that's it for this episode of the Contracting Officer Podcast. Tell us what you like and, more importantly, what you don't like about the podcast. Schedule a feedback session with Kevin at AskSkyway.com. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for joining us.